Hey friends, it's Kara Kay, and this is the Asking for a Friend podcast, a show for the woman who has questions about herself, the church, and the world. We are all asking tough questions that affect us as women in the culture that surrounds us, and we are looking for a safe space to ask them. But don't worry, I know you're only asking for a friend. Well, hey friends, welcome to another episode of Asking for a Friend. I am thrilled that you're here today. Today I have Daniel Hill on the show and we are going to be tackling the question, how can we fight racial systems that divide us? And we're going to really dig into what that looks like within the church and rooting out white supremacy in the church. So should be super fun and not uncomfortable at all because I'm all about easy breezy topics. So If you don't know Daniel, he is the founding and senior pastor of River City Community Church that is in Chicago. He's the author of White Awake in 1010, and then his new book, White Lies, that is just coming out. Um, Him and his wife, Elizabeth, they have two kiddos and live in Chicago. So you can check him out. His website is pastordanielhill.com. You can go and give him a follow on Instagram and all the things. And I highly recommend reading his books. He's very wise and very humble in his work of racial unity and what that looks like within our churches. So before we get started, really quick, I just want to ask you guys for a couple of things. I want to encourage you to support the show here. So there's a few ways that you can do that. One, you can just subscribe to the show. Wherever you're listening, you just hit subscribe. You can share it with a friend. So hop over on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, wherever, and share a show that really meant something to you. And then finally, I'd love if you could leave a review for the show. These are so important. I know I say that all the time, but they really help people find the show and get involved in our conversations here. So I'd love for you to do that. You can go leave a review and then let's get into the conversation today with Daniel. Well, let's talk about some of those today because I think this is such an important conversation. I've had a chance to sit down and read through the book and I'm so grateful for your work and what you're doing to help educate people. Um, Before we get into that, I'm just curious, what got you started in this work? Was there a life circumstance or what was it that got you passionate about this? (laughs) it's funny of all the places. I mean, funny, not funny. I, one of one of my deep regrets over the course of my life is I've had so many moments where I've come up to face to face with the reality of race. You know, and uh-huh. I should have wrestled with it more and didn't. You know, and it's yes, level, same. I completely know. get that. Yeah. Um, so that's what makes it funny. Of like of all the of all the moments I've had where I could have, should have. It ended up being a wedding that ended up being the catalyst for me. Um, I was a young minister in my early twenties, and it was the first cross cultural wedding I'd ever done. And it was a friend, it was a white woman and a guy whose parents are from India. And he told me, you know, hey, especially at the rehearsal dinner the night before, you're going to get a deep dive into Indian culture. Yes. uh, I was like, oh, great. I'm looking forward to that. And, you know, it was indeed, you know, the the music, the the smells, the food, even the dancing. He kind of got me out doing kind of an Indian stick dance. And it was just a really kind of enchanting evening. And so um, towards the end of the night, towards the end of the evening, I went and grabbed him and wanted to thank him just for what a special experience it was. And I said something that wasn't that noteworthy to me at the time, but I think it's something that's indicative of the journey of a lot of us who are white. And I said to him, 
you know, hey, mm-hmm. thank you so much for inviting me into this evening. I'm so glad I got to experience your culture. Um, as a white person, obviously, I don't have a culture. And so it's like such a gift when I can do <laughs> something like this, right? right? And so it says, he's this gregarious guy who very rarely had serious conversations anyway. I especially wasn't expecting it on his <laughs> night before his wedding, but he got right. very serious. And he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Daniel, not only do you have a culture, but when your culture comes in contact with other cultures, yours always wins. That's one right. Of the greatest, yeah, that's right. One, said, one of the greatest wedding gifts you could give me is start becoming serious about understanding your own culture. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so, so of all the things really that happened in life, yeah, you into it. yeah, he kind of opened a door that you know, he kind of, I had the choice to walk through or not. And he went back out on the dance floor, and like some something just got stirred in me that like never got put yeah. back <laughs> to the old status quo oh, again after that. That's awesome. I feel like a lot for a lot of people doing this work, that's what it is. It's something like that, something in their lives that made that light bulb come on. Right. And they and as my husband and I always say, once. Once your bubble is burst, has burst, mm-hmm. you can't go back. And that happened. We adopted um, our son about four and a half years ago. He's black, and so that was that was the bubble for us. That was the bubble yeah. burster. And so now we're like, we can't even wrap our minds around how we were thinking about this before. You know, right. it's it's so crazy that once you once it has burst, to see you know all the things that you were blind to before. So yeah. yeah, I'm grateful that that your bubble burst as well. So let's talk about this a little bit about these lies. I love in the book where you talked about the word woke, because I think that's something that we hear a lot and, and we think that that's a really positive thing, but yeah. why is that dangerous? Why has that become a dangerous word and mindset for uh, people? Yeah, thanks. That, that's I'm glad you said word and mindset because when I talk about this for a lot of people, like, oh well, technically I don't use the word woke, you know, and then that misses yeah. the larger points, right? So right. the point the point here is not to dissect the actual word woke. The the right. the point is that it represents a mindset that actually never moves, um, yes. but the language that describes the mindset moves. And so I, I think the way I'm talking about it now is like there's something positive in it, and there's something profoundly dangerous in it. So we want to like mm-hmm. grab onto the positive and then be aware of the dangerous. So the positive part of that word or that mindset is that we should actually be conscious of what's happening around us, right? Um, that's part of being white in the system of race is that mm-hmm. not only would we just not notice it anyway, but I would, I'd go so far to argue is that the system of race conditions us um, to not notice it. And so learning to become conscious of the way it works and what its threat level is and how it harms people is actually really important, right? So I don't want to lose that part at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, the dangerous part of the mindset is that um, and I think this just speaks to kind of our humanness, maybe even our human depravity, but none of us wants to be part of something that we can't ever understand, <laughs> that we can't ever right. eventually solve, that we can't ever eventually re- reach an arrival point on. And so there's something deep in the white psychology that once that you described that bubble being burst, that light bulb being mm-hmm. turned on, once that happens, it's almost instinctive in us. We kind of ask from where I am to where I need to be, you know, what's the arrival point? What's the destination point? When can I say I've arrived? Like I'm, I'm with it. I'm on the right side of this thing. Right. I'm yeah. like one of the, I'm one of the good guys, the good people. Right. In this. Like w- where is that point? And that's really what woke speaks to is this hunger we have to reach mm-hmm. an arrival point. Um, and that's the part I would say is super dangerous because that assumes there's just a few facts missing or a few boxes to check. And then if we could just get those facts or check those boxes or get down with that cause, whatever the thing would be, that we'd hit that arrival point. We can kind of exhale and join the ranks of all those who are <laughs> esteemed allies in this work. Right. right, and right. Instead of saying like, there's this profound system that was designed um, to privilege and advantage me. And um, even when I'm serious about it, 
Um, on some days I'm going to get it and be on the right side. And on that same day, I'm going to be complicit on the wrong side. Like that's just going to be reality in this thing. Right. right? So there's got to be a sense of humility and curiosity and teachability that permanently defines this um, process for us. And so if, if, if the word woke or the notion of woke disables our ability to kind of embrace that sense of ongoing humility and learning around it, then it becomes a really dangerous idea. Yeah. I think it's really smart to walk into this with humility and remain humble in it. Um, some of the greatest people that I've learned from in this are those people that when you look at them, they don't appear to have arrived because I don't think we ever arrive. And just that constant learning, um, and teachability is so huge in this. How can we as white Christians, how can we confront our pride that we may not even realize we have? I think a lot of times we don't recognize it. How can we confront that and kind of root that out in us? Yeah, yeah. one of the most bizarre, th- and it's where I do think there is a distinctly Christian approach to this, but one of the most bizarre mm-hmm. realities of this for white Christians is the very things that we subscribe to kind of as part of our Christian faith, we abandon once it comes to the journey of race, right? Mm-hmm. So when it comes to being a Christian, nobody ever says, how do I get to the arrival point to being a good Christian? Right. Like, when, when do I know I've arrived and I have no longer have work to do? I'm no longer depraved. I'm no longer conditioned by sin. I no longer need to repent anymore, right? Like, mm-hmm. nobody in the right mind would say that, right? Like, the arrogance even of, of suggesting something like that would be, it couldn't even get out of off the tongue, right? You, you wouldn't even think like right. that, right? So, I mean, that's really what the system of race is, is this profoundly sin- sinful system that we all kind of breathe the toxins in of. So, you, you I just think we need to access the same kind of things that are second nature to us who are, mm-hmm. you know, active believers, um, it, like to, to embrace pride in the spiritual life is to become a Pharisee, right? Where you start looking down on other people because you think you actually have yeah. arrived, right? Yeah. And so we know we can't do that. It has to be humility. You can't receive grace otherwise. So I, I don't think we have to get real inventive. We just have to like mm-hmm. figure out like why we've abandoned some of these things that are so core to our faith when it comes to this racial awakening journey. Let's let's shift and talk a little bit about diversity. Mm-hmm. I loved that you approached this because this has been something that has been in conversations in circles that I'm in as well, that, well, segregation is the problem. So diversity has to be the right. solution, but diversity is not going to solve problems. Just putting someone, you know, someone, a person of color into a circle doesn't change how the things are functioning. And the fact that those white voices, that white supremacy still reigns over things. Mm -hmm. So what does this look like of, you know, of why diversity can be an issue and why is that mindset of diversity not always helpful in situations? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, that's an important one. You know, you see this in church spaces all the time, a church that's kind of historically been white, homogenous, all of a sudden has this, their own, their corporate version of a light bulb moment, right? And they go, oh my Mm -hmm. gosh, we're all white, and we didn't mean to be, we certainly (laughs) wouldn't want to exclude anybody. So, um, so you know, you often, you often hear the Dr. Martin Luther King quote, right? The most segregated hour of the week is 11 Mm -hmm. o'clock on Sunday, right? So that tends to be, right, that, that tends to start to be the starting point, All right? Well, if the problem statement is that we're segregated on Sunday morning, then the solution statement must be we need to be diversified on Sunday Mm -hmm. morning, right? But of course, that's not what he was ultimately saying. What he was saying is that one of the ways you can see the impact of white supremacy on not only all society, but on the church itself is the fact that the church cannot even unify in any kind of way around race, right? That white supremacy Mm -hmm. is that profound. So he wasn't saying the answer is diversify. He's saying we have to address that white supremacy problem that's created this segregation. And that's that's really it at the end of the day, right? If if we treat diversity as a means to an end, it can be very powerful. 
Um, mm-hmm. If we treat diversity as an end in itself, that's when it becomes dangerous, right? right. So like you said, we don't need just a person of color on a, on a team. We yeah. need people of color to help us who are white see how does the legacy of white supremacy continue to play itself out in our mm-hmm. organization, right? That's yeah. a far more difficult but transformational work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it, you know, you need those voices that can help you see why you are the right. way that you are and what your blind spots are. But it's not just putting them up on stage and then exhaling and saying, okay, good, we're diverse now. Ooh, right? We're good. Like we that's just, it, yeah, yeah, right. That's just, that's inviting them into a system that was already broken around race. Right. And so right. diversity is a powerful tool. It's just not an end in and of itself. Yeah. I was recently having a conversation with a friend of mine who is black and I was talking to her about this and she said, you know, white people need to get to the point that just listening to black voices isn't just a, a way for them to learn. But it's a, they need to get to the point that they can appreciate, they can look at their culture and f- you know, feel something, that they can look at their art and listen to them, not just in a you know, way to get something for yourself, but to look at them at the human level and really respect and love them for who they are the way that God made them and the way that they function in the world. And that was just huge for me to hear that of, I feel like so many times we, as white Christians, we, you know, we create this diversity. We look to our black brothers and sisters or, you know, anyone of color and we think, okay, well I can learn from them. I can sit under them and learn, but sometimes it's not just about us getting something out of it at the end of the day. It's really uplifting them and respecting what they do. How can we find a healthy solution, do you think, in this issue of segregation in the church? Do you see some steps that can be made practically? It's practical, but hard. Um, You know, the system of white supremacy is different than us talking about white people, right? Like right, those, right. You, those of us who are white, we are, we're called white because of the system that was invented, right? right? That's not our origins. We all have European ancestries mm-hmm. of different kinds, you know, and so there's this whole reality of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the challenge, the, the challenge is that in order for us to like fully embrace our own humanity, which I think we need to do and mm-hmm. we should do, it's who God has created us yeah. to be, right? God created us in our mother's womb just as much as he created anybody else in, the, in our mother's womb, you know, fearfully mm-hmm. and wonderfully made. Um, but in order to be able to fully embrace that, to live into our identity in Christ, we have to decouple ourselves from the lives of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And it's that's the practical but hard piece is the decoupling, right? right? Like yeah. we should totally embrace who we are and who our neighbor is and be able to like see that in each other. But most of us who are white, that's a, like just even that statement that I need to decouple myself from the lies mm-hmm. of white supremacy is a totally foreign statement. Right. It's not right. it's not part of our traditional spiritual formation practices or how we think about growing in faith. And so the fact that that's yeah. such a confusing statement right off the bat speaks to some of the challenge of the very practical thing. Which like that's you can't be any more practical than that, right? You will experience transformation, liberation as you decouple yourself from the lies of white supremacy. Yeah. Um, it's just that that's probably uh, still feels a little bit vague of what that even means. Mm-hmm. Right? That like opens up a whole host of other questions for people. But that is the practical work. Like we need diversity, we need self reflection, we need all these things to help us in our own liberation process of decoupling from the lies of white supremacy. Now you have the church that you founded in Chicago is incredibly diverse, um, if we want to use that word diverse, but what is that, what did that journey look like for you in bringing people around you? Because I feel like that's a lot of times how we can actually get to a place, not a place of, I have arrived, but a place of, okay, we're doing the work. We're, we're creating spaces that look like the kingdom of God. What did that journey look like for you and your community? 
I, I mean, I think at a corporate collective church level, we have the same set of challenges that we do at an individual level. Right. So mm -hmm. I started this by saying that wedding story where he said, not only are yeah. you white, but your culture always wins. And I was like, what do you mean I'm white? And what does that mean? I have white culture. And for sure, what does that mean that it wins? Right. Like right, those were right. almost all offensive statements to me. Right. But the reality is like my ability to be in authentic friendship with him was predicated on mm -hmm. me learning those questions. Like, what does it actually right. mean that I'm white? Um, and like, how do I redeem my own humanity in that given mm -hmm. that there's this kind of system of things? Right. So the same ten th thing tends to happen in white churches where um, it's so rare that a white leadership team says, wow, we actually are a white church. There's reasons for that. There's cultural mm -hmm. norms. There's actually white supremacy embedded into the way we do things. Therefore, before we ever try to bring in people of color, we need to start asking, what does it mean that we're a white church? Yeah. What does it mean that we function according to a white ethos? What does it mean that white supremacy is just inherently breathed into our system? Like Nobody starts there. We should, but nobody starts right, there. That right. what we say is we say, our system is fine. Our church community is fine. Mm -hmm. The way we do things is fine, but that's yeah, not good that we don't have. Been. Yeah, yeah, that's it's not I've, good. I hear those things all the time. Like, yeah, this is just how good. we are. Yeah. 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 So it's not good, though, that people of color don't feel welcome. So how do we make them feel right. more welcome? It's what we already do, right? Which kind right. of puts, th th there's kind of an unstated assumption that if, if you could position differently, you know, the, pe the people of color, you know, oh, oh, I am welcome, right? I can participate in things. Instead of yeah. saying, if people of color who are racially conscious start to come, are we ready to hear what they see that we don't see? And are we ready to start beginning to change according to what they help us discover about ourselves, right? Like that would be right. the setup for transformation, but that's just not how any of us ever kind of started. So that was the difference between me working mm -hmm. in all white spaces. I mean, this was a painful process, but when we started our yeah. church, that I was no longer trying to replicate what I had always seen in white church circles. I was inviting a team of diverse perspectives to like help me right. build on what were my strengths and to also see what were my blind spots and to kind of discover together what does it look like to have a church spaces, of course, built off of the scriptures, right? It's not like we're reinventing. Yeah. But even the scripture themselves, the scriptures themselves, those were, all, those were all <laughs> yeah. diverse spaces in the New Testament, yeah. right? We forget that, right? I mean, that diversity yeah. was the norm in the New Testament, not the exception. And so yeah. they were constantly working out issues with Jews and Gentiles or in, you know, most of those churches were in urban centers that were you know, very, mm -hmm. very, very culturally diverse. So anyway, bottom line, being um most of us who are white don't realize that the white church model we subscribe to is not actually super well aligned with how the early church would have functioned and if we're going to yeah. get aligned with it we're going to need to discover some blind spots and that's scary it's really scary it is, yeah but it's also liberating right so i mean yes. those two go together yeah it, it really stood out to me where you know it's like well that was hard i had to say this isn't how i'm going to do it anymore and i think that so many of us are not willing a lot of times to step out of our comfort zone mm -hmm. and say right. i'm not going to function the way that i have you know i always have because it's too painful and it's too unclear of what it might look like mm -hmm. going forward mm -hmm. so let's say you're sitting down with a pastor and his team mm -hmm. and they are in this place of okay we we need to make some changes we are seeing this you know the white supremacy that is taking over our church our community what are some steps that you would give them in in moving forward in this <laughs> well, you're being real gracious in the question. I think I probably have met 10 pastors in my whole life who that's their starting point would be that we see that white supremacy is real and that it's impacting yeah. our lives and our church and our community. What do we do? So I think that's a valid question. Um, but I also think we have to like just slow down just a little bit and say that that yeah. you, you're, you're, you're profoundly deep actually in the journey if you can ask those questions. Like that's a, if right. you can authentically right. oh, say sure. that, if you can authentically say, I believe white supremacy is real. 
I believe is pervasive. I believe there must be a Christian response to it. I believe we as a church should organize ourselves. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, the, the reason I stress that is because most pastors will get fired. Like li, li, this is oh, just an absolutely. unwillingness. Most yeah. pastors will get fired if they say what you just said right there. So, yeah. um, you know, that's probably where most of the work is, mm-hmm. um, for most white leadership teams is actually getting to the place that they believe yeah. that supremacy is real. They have a, some kind of a sense of what it is. They have some kind of a sense of the imperative nature of addressing it from a biblical perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I just want to stress that <laughs> in terms of, yeah, just um, to make sure that there are further back steps that have to go into place there. Yeah. And then I guess in some senses that does lead to the answer too. Yeah. Uh, for, for most white Christians, I mean, this is just, I don't know how to say it in kind of a lesbian way. The sad state of affairs is if you try to talk about white supremacy with most white Christians, you're not actually going to find a curious audience who's trying to understand yeah. it more. Um, right. it, it sets off all these tripwires, like there's defensiveness, there's mm-hmm. anger, there's rage, even there's, um, there's this kind of instinctive rebuttal to kind of attach names to it that yeah. distance, you know, like, well, that's just a political ideology, right? you know, right. that, that, that's just a liberal movement. If you're in conservative circles, like that's just a social kind of a thing. So it's, it's mm-hmm. you almost can't overstate how difficult it is for the typical white Christian to kind of engage with the subject matter. So, right. so really if it's a white church, that's going to always be the tallest task before them is how to bring mm-hmm. the white community in the church along for the ride. Cause you're, yeah. you know, if you've got racially conscious people of color, you're not going to have a difficult time saying, right. come to the right. table that's and let's true. talk about white supremacy. Like that's what they spend every day of their life doing, right. Is yes. trying to figure out how to navigate the real white supremacy. Like what always, and I think I can say always in this case, what always suffocates the process and undermines it is that mm-hmm. we as white folks are very rarely able to kind of sit at the table in a meaningful way and have mm-hmm. a shared starting point that white supremacy is real and therefore we need to do something about it. So let's take a step back. What does it look like the beginning steps of the fight for churches to take? Because I, I can tell you in churches that we have served in, that's absolutely the case. You know, it's like, well, we want to, but all of the big givers are going to leave the church or right. all of, you know, all of these people are going to be mad over here. And this group's going to think right. this, you know, that I've seen that in so many places I've been that they're worried about more and more division. So what are some first steps you would say to take in this fight? Well, sadly and soberly, uh, I also hear, always hear that too. What the sad part mm-hmm. is they're probably not wrong. And that's, that's the right, sad, that's the right. sad part. Like, like, I know of two different pastors now who, and they were not hard. They did not push hard. Hard did it. But I know two different pastors who really attempted to move their largely white churches in this direction to embrace it. And in both cases, they did lose all their big donors. And in one case, one had to quit because it was just too painful for them. The other one, it mm-hmm. took them like three years to recover from it. And now they're back right. at square one again going, uh, how much, yeah, how much do we put, like, what kind of a trade-off are we willing to make? So, mm-hmm. you know, I do think of that passage, I think it's in Luke, where Jesus talks about counting the cost of discipleship. Yeah. Right. And traditionally, how we often think of that is like count the cost for ourselves. Are we ready to follow Jesus? Mm -hmm. Which I think is a totally appropriate way to think of count the cost. You know, but in that in that parable in Luke, when Jesus says it, he actually turns it in terms of like count the cost of what it's going to be required to build what you're trying to build, right? Like he says, yes. what sense does it make to like build a tower? If it, I can't remember exactly how he says it, but basically like what sense does it do to set out, this is my paraphrase version, but it's close. What, what sense does it do to set out to build something if you do not actually have the supplies that are needed to do it? Right, right. Right, so I think there's some pre-work before you ever actually start doing it on the front end of like, am I ready for this? Um, is our mm-hmm. church ready for this? If not to either those questions, why? Um, 
Um, right. right. And, and what can we do um, in order to ready ourselves? And again, I, 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 I have, I mean, even in our church that's been founded around this, you know, mm-hmm. we, we just, we've had a hard year here in the, in the United States, right. With um, yeah. some of the racial stuff, Ahmaud Arbery and Brianna Taylor and George right. Floyd. <clears throat> and so we went hard into that conversation and it's mm-hmm. just, the, it, it's, it's very challenging for certain kind yeah. of white folks when the, when the rhetoric kind of gets high around the legacy of white supremacy and the need for us to confront right. that. Even when you intellectually believe that it's fatiguing and threatening. So when you're not already organized around this, yeah, it's just it's just a major thing. So I think that I think yeah. kind of that counting the cost, reading yourself, right, the congregation is the first thing. I think the second thing, especially in Bible believing spaces, even if you don't use the term evangelical, if it's a Bible believing space, you know, the best of Bible believing spaces, particularly, you know, those that have a high view of scripture, is that there's a very simple line between if I follow Jesus, I need to follow what scripture says, right? That's how Jesus right, is revealed. Right. Um, that's how I kind of organize the way I live my life. And um, mm-hmm. uh, so one of the to say it negatively, one of the problems is that we've not historically talked about Christian discipleship as including mm-hmm. the problem of race and the confrontation of white supremacy. Said in the positive, that's really the only meaningful way to move people along is to help them see it biblically. You know, uh, right. while I think there's a real important role in understanding the sociological dimension of race and the historical reality of how we got here, um, I think it has to be theology and biblical reflection that drives everything for us. Absolutely. And so that yeah. would be the other thing for pastors and leadership teams is to figure out like, how can they begin to adapt some of the theologians who have done all this work, you know, around clearly tying orthodox theology to the necessity of confronting white supremacy? I think that pastors and leaders and teachers need to kind of integrate for themselves. Like, how do we already talk about Jesus in this church? How do we already talk about discipleship? There, there's no way, it really shouldn't matter which way you talk about because if you're really authentic talking about Jesus, it shouldn't be hard to integrate this yeah. in. It's only hard because we haven't traditionally done it. And so I think a little bit of time needs to be invested in terms of studying other people doing biblical reflection and theological work, and then finding yes. a way to talk about discipleship and following Jesus in such a manner where it's intuitive and natural um, to confront white supremacy from there. And so I think yeah. that's a pretty key piece Absolutely. because then, yeah, yeah we, we want to be kind of grounding this in kind of the work of Jesus. Yeah, I think that's uh, the perfect answer, I think, because I think we have missed that in the white American culture church that we have skipped that process of discipleship and and really discipling people of what that looks like, that race is a part of scripture and it's part of our story. And we just kind of skip over the hard stuff because we don't want to go into that, but it's important. And I think if we aren't doing that, then we're missing something in our circles that we could really do do a better job of really helping re-disciple people. Yeah. Okay, so here on my show, I really want, you know, my listeners to be people who ask questions. They do the work and reframe their thinking about the world around them. Is there anything that you have read or watched or listened to lately that has helped you reframe the way you look at the world? Yeah, it's ironic because it's not a Christian book, but it's been That's one of the most fine. one of the most helpful books for me understanding kind of the problem that we're facing. You know, I think it's been twenty plus years now, but Dr. Beverly Tatum was the president of Spelman oh, College yeah. for a long time and wrote this kind of landmark book called Why Do All the Black Kids Sit Together mm-hmm. in the Cafeteria? Yeah. Um, and I think any any church that's trying to become diverse should read that, I think, because yes. 
the, the, the book title came in response to actually educational institutions who were doing the same thing churches are trying to do, where they, they weren't right. antagonistic to this conversation. They were trying to become diverse, right? They were doing everything they knew to do to diversify. Mm-hmm. And yet their lament would be as soon as there's a voluntary social setting, like a lunchroom, you know, yeah. the black kids always end up sitting together still. Why? Yeah. Why is that? Yeah. And in, in the, the kind of clear, cogent way in which she describes the way black folks have to navigate the history of white supremacy and the way white folks have to navigate the history of white supremacy is the, is the answer to why the black kids always end up sitting together at the cafeteria. And um, I'd say that's the book that like reset me more than any other one. Yes. Yes. I a hundred percent agree. I think that was the book that burst my bubble. <laughs> I think it was one oh, of really? the first books I read. Yeah, yeah. About really starting to understand race and was like, Oh my gosh, I, how have I missed this? How has this not been so, you know, how, why wasn't this taught to me as a child growing up? You know, those right, kind of things right. that, so I highly recommend her book as well. Can you tell me just something fun? Because we talk about such heavy topics here on the <laughs> show. <laughs> Share something with me that has brought you joy this week. Well, I'm actually talking to you from the Indiana Dunes right now. Oh, know, nice. So in the midst of COVID, well, you know yep. this better than anybody, right? Uh, <laughs> yes, I do. It, um, you know, it's, but it, boy, it's just so hard to do anything with kids because there's like so mm-hmm. few places you can go. And so... What my wife and I actually have done is we, we usually put them in summer camp, but we've been kind of swapping, taking them on short trips. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so we spent, me and my two kiddos, my 11-year-old and 8-year-old, spent the entire day on the Indiana Dunes yesterday, and they were tested, they were pushing themselves physically to see how many rounds they could do up and down these enormous sand dunes here in Indiana. <laughs> and so um, I had a lot of joy watching them oh, so test fun. their physical limits on these sand dunes. All right. Can you tell us where people can find your new book, where they can find you? Um, sure. Yeah. On social media, um, especially Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I'm, I'm at, at Daniel Hill, 1336, 1336, Daniel Hill, 1336. And then the book, I mean, the book can be found anywhere, but um, we have a webpage. It's called White Lies Book. So the, the word white, the word lies, book.com. All right. And that's got all the info on it as well. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for taking the time away from exploring on the dunes to talk to me today. (laughs) This has been great. I really appreciate it. Uh, Thank you for the work you're doing. Appreciate the time with you. Now, if you guys haven't read any of Daniel's books, I really encourage you to do that. His first book, Wide Awake, was such a huge book for me. Reading that really helped open my eyes to all of this. And like we said, um, really burst my bubble. And so I really encourage you guys to do the same to do your homework, to study, and to learn. Now, before we go today, I have something really fun I want to tell you about. So I'm going to be speaking at a conference this fall. No, not a conference in person because apparently those don't happen anymore. Thanks, COVID. But I'm speaking at an online conference. Now, this conference is a parenting conference. Woo, that'll be fun. I'm not, um, I don't have the best parenting advice, but we can speak lots of truth and it will be fun. But it's called Perfectly Imperfect, which I think is very fitting. Um, a Christian parenting event. So there are tons of amazing speakers and I'm putting a link in the show notes today. You guys know where to find those. Just either swipe up or left or right or however in the app that you're in, or you can head over to karakjames.com slash podcast for all of the show notes. And there is a link to get a special early bird prize. It's only 29 bucks, you guys. And yeah, amazing speakers. You can see everybody there from the link in the show notes. So Thanks so much, you guys, for joining me today. I hope to see you back here next week. It's going to be another great conversation. And as always, you can follow me on Facebook and Instagram. I'm at karakay.james. And finally, keep asking questions for a friend. Mm-hmm.